Welcome to The Sexy Times. I'm your host, Melanie Chambers, a journalist, author, cyclist, and sexual human being. I talk to women redefining what it means to be a sexy, confident woman. Let's dig in. Enjoy. When Kim Alexander was a teen, instead of having the sex talk, her parents gave her a set of pamphlets. Ta-da! Sexual education. So when she grew up and became a doctor, she made it her mission to ensure no one would get the pamphlet treatment ever. As an obstetrician and gynecologist based in Brampton, uh, Brampton, Ontario today, she focuses on HPV disease and vulvar health. She teaches an online course to high school students called Our Whole Lives. And for adults, she designed the curriculum Grown Ups, Your Sexual Self. It's a week-long workshop which explores healthy sexuality. And if that's not enough, Dr. Alexander is writing a book about sexual education for adults 40 and up. This is our conversation about growing up completely sexually clueless in the 80s. Enjoy! Thanks for meeting me this morning, and I should say afternoon now. Um, I'm I'm very interested in what you have to say for so many reasons, because it's the physical side of middle age, the the uh, emotional side of our sexuality, and um, I almost see that you know in the middle age, women are going through uh, another identity crisis, <laughs> almost similar to you know our teenage years. You know, physically we're changing, mentally we don't know what to do with it, and. Um, you know, on both those counts, physically and mentally, can you speak to that? What you're seeing in women? Um, what are they? What are they struggling with? It's a big question. Sure. <laughs> it's a big question. Um, well, we've talked about um, physical changes, and obviously, people. Not everybody knows that menopause is actually a clinical diagnosis. It's not diagnosed on imaging. It's not diagnosed on blood work menopause and perimenopause is diagnosed based on what you describe on patterns on feelings on changes that you can describe to your physician um and all of those things including changes in your periods and changes in your moods and changes in how your vagina feels and functions all of those things all tend to uh, wax and wane in the years approaching the menopause. And then we define the menopause as a full year after your last period. So it is a clinical diagnosis. There's a new product on the market uh, where you you pee on a stick and it analyzes your, your, tells you if you're menopausal or not. That's useless. It's absolutely not indicated. We believe women in this particular case, <laughs> at least in one aspect wow. of in life, this is the diagnosis that is actually made based on the history that you give us. Um, That's shocking. Well, right. Yes and no. <laughs> in terms of emotional changes, again, all of our hormones through most of earlier life, once again, similar to in adolescence, we have periods that may not be so regular hormones that are high one month and low the rest. And then through our 20s and 30s, generally things tend to, for the most part, be fairly predictable for the majority of women. 
Mm -hmm. um, but as we come into the perimenopausal transition, we see things change drastically month to month. It's impossible anymore to know what to expect in terms of your mood, in terms of your libido, in terms of your bleeding pattern, all of those things go out the window. Yeah. As we have some months when our ovaries are making more than enough hormones and some months where they're not making enough. So we'll see each of those things change individually month to month as well. Um, and we see fluctuations as well in mental health uh, in this transition, just as many people experience their first episode of depression or anxiety, um, it, as pubertal shifts in hormones happen, we see the same thing happen around middle age, people who were, you know, asymptomatic or well controlled for years can find that these things are, are more unpredictable and more difficult to manage. Um, as they come into the perimenopausal transition. So all of all of those things change and are unpredictable in these years, which is really hard for people who like to know that everything's okay. Right. Um, I'm currently writing, as I told you before, um, an article on women in aging and athletics and that estrogen, which used to be the enemy, now seems to be not the enemy that we should be um, ingesting estrogen that it's like sort of um like our thyroid it's linked to everything and all of a sudden everything from the brain fog to our bones um all of that is linked to the decreasing amount of estrogen that we have in our body um our our physicians saying go back on the estrogen now like what is the the research saying so the research never said it was the wrong thing to do. Okay. The way that the media reported the findings of the Women's Health Initiative trial, which was kind of the big trial yes. 15 years ago that, that came up with some findings that were less reassuring than we were hoping to hear. Um, the way those findings were reported and the way the media reported them really didn't do justice to the actual findings. Um, it was the best design trial that we had up until that point. And the reason that it was designed the way it was is because we'd had such promising findings in observational trials where we looked at people who were taking estrogen and people who weren't and then saw how they did. The thing is, women who are in control of their health and interested and engaged are more likely to start a medication. And those people are also more likely to be engaged in other forms of things that help with health. So based on observational trials, we had kind of figured that taking hormones would help all sorts of things, would decrease coronary artery disease, decrease stroke, decrease cancer risk right into the late 70s. And the Women's Health Organization, as a result of those observational trials, looked at women from the time of menopause right up to the 70s and started them on new start estrogen. And what we found in that trial is that if after 20 years of no estrogen, you start estrogen, it's not good for you. <laughs> right. And that's what we saw when if you actually broke down the numbers and analyzed them, what we saw is that, oh, gosh, you can't actually start it at age 70 by then the damage is already done and estrogen actually makes it worse. Okay. But when you looked at those numbers and actually looked at the trial findings in people who were younger and people who were within a few years of the end of periods, that there actually was very minimal adverse effects in terms of taking the hormones. Okay. Um, so generally my advice has always been, and the new guidelines, well, guidelines have always supported this, to be honest, even in the years immediately following WHI when, when 
most lay people were not so comfortable using the medications, mm-hmm. um, that they are the most effective treatment for hot flashes and all of the things that come with them. Right. Um, sleep disruption is incredibly bad for your health. And for people who are really suffering with menopausal symptoms, who are up with multiple hot flashes through the night, not sleeping, exhausted through the day, starting hormone therapy in your 40s or 50s helps with all of that stuff in a way that really allows you to live a healthy life with minimal risk. Right. So we've always known that. My When I counsel, I don't do a lot of menopause health in my clinic, but when I talk to friends and family, my byline when it comes to hormones is, Agony is optional. Agony. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, you know, if you get one hot flash every couple of weeks, then yeah, don't start it. You don't need it. But like, if it's really destroying your ability to be in community and be a happy, healthy person, like, it's all good. The other strong indication for starting hormones is osteoporosis. So if you've got really decreased bone density, estrogen is the best thing we can offer you. And as we know, as we get older, that decrease in bone density is really associated with high rates of death and disability. Um, So that's the other thing, you know, everyone has to kind of look at their own individual risk factors. As we get older, the risk factors of heart disease and stroke. If If you're in a family where everyone dies of a heart attack at 45, you might not be the best candidate for estrogen, right? It's going to increase those risks. Okay. One way to look at those risks is um, estrogen and progesterone are hormones that are at high levels in pregnancy, Mm -hmm. right? So if you look at pregnancy, the levels of those hormones are almost 10 times higher than the level in the average birth control pill. Oh, wait. Patients are worried about starting the birth control pill. I say, well, the risk if you happen to get pregnant is 10 times higher than if you start this pill for pregnancy prevention, right? There is a risk associated with taking it, yes. But we don't think about that risk when we plan a pregnancy. We don't say, oh gosh, I'm not gonna have a baby because I might have a stroke, but you might. And the older we get, the higher those risks are, right? So the same thing applies to menopausal hormone treatment, except those doses are even lower than the dose on the low dose birth control pill. Mm. So we're looking at really minuscule doses. But as we age, as our cardiovascular risk factors associated with family get more and more prominent, then the risks of even smaller doses of estrogen become something to consider. Okay. But again, like you could drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow, or you could alienate everyone you care about because you've turned into a screaming. (laughs) (laughs) I'm worried about the latter. Yeah. (laughs) I I find it really is an individualized conversation to have with your doctor about your individual risk factors. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, having said all that, um, it's depressing me. So I'm going to switch gears. The other thing that I'm I'm fascinated by is that you're writing a book about sex. Can you talk about what you do, um, your education component, uh, and why do we need another book on sex? Sure. So um, for more than 15 years now, my practice has been super specialized. So everyone that I see is someone who has an issue with a lower genital tract, which means cervix, vagina, vulva. So I deal with diseases in those areas. Most of the cervical disease that we see is based on infection with HPV, which is our most common sexually transmitted infection and the cause of cervical cancer. So the work that I do is about sexually transmitted cancer. 
and making sure that we prevent it in as many cases as we can. So obviously, knowledge of that infection for many people comes with a real sense of shock and for some people a real sense of shame. Um, so there's a lot of educational component and talking about shame and self-worth and normal sexuality and all of that can play a role for some patients in allowing them to process and live with this infection. The other component of patients that I see are patients who have skin conditions um, that may make the enjoyment of sexuality more challenging. Um, so for those patients, the component of sexuality that I was working with was more around how do we you know, make things as good as we can in a less than great situation and how can we help you negotiate with a partner around things that are gonna work well for you. Okay. Um, so I found that in my practice, not really intentionally, but just as a byproduct of the kind of work I was doing that so much of what I was doing was education around physical and emotional sexual health. Um, then I became associated with the Unitarian Universalist Church, which is a non-creedal religion. So you don't have to believe in anything. You can be atheist, you can be Christian, you can be Buddhist, you can be neo-pagan. It doesn't matter what your beliefs are. It's a church where people gather to live the best lives they can. And because there's no agreement on what we're supposed to do with this, like to be, you know, saved or go on, be reincarnated, whatever it is, what Unitarian Universalists tend to do is focus on what can we do to make our life here as healthy and good as it can be. And one of those components is sexual education. So all of the kids in UU Sunday school do a really great comprehensive sex ed curriculum. So I started teaching sex ed with the Our Whole Lives program, the OWL program through the UU congregations. So I started teaching that. Most the class I did most often was grade seven to nine. Mm -hmm. And then again, over the years, as I talked with friends and had conversations, I realized that even among my peers, um, who are invariably brilliant and funny and shameless and well-educated and all of these things, still really were lacking a basic level of knowledge around mm -hmm. sexual health. Like how, like how basic are we talking? What's an example? Like, like that cervical cancer is a sexually transmitted disease or that um, there's no refractory period after prostate orgasms or that most women don't experience spontaneous desire most of the time, like basic, basic pieces of who we are and how we work and mm -hmm. what we need to look out for and what brings us joy and pleasure. Um, so as I kind of started coming towards middle age, I was talking with my friend Ann Bachma, who was on a previous episode of yours, and saying, listen, I feel like my purpose in the second half of life is going to be to improve sexual health literacy for North Americans. Like, I feel like this is where I want to put my focus. And Anne said, oh, gosh, that's easy. Just write a book. <laughs> At the time, I was solo parenting young children, full-time practicing in medicine, trying to have some kind of life. And I was like, yeah. Just sure. write a book. And that's just write a book. Yeah. Um, in your spare time. My spare time. Um, but that was about five years ago, and it's been kind of percolating away in there ever since. And of course, the reason that Anne recommended that is because kind of the way that things work in this current circumstance is that your book is your calling card to be able to have conversations, right? Oh. Your publisher puts you on the publicity tour, and you get to actually have these conversations. Yeah. So 
it kind of just sat back there in the back of my mind. Um, and I did a couple of Anne's workshops and teaches memoir writing workshops and was like, oh, you know what? I'm, I'm actually pretty good at this. Writing is something that I can do. Yep. And uh, so I started telling people that I was going to write a book. And then I was like, well, why don't I just do the thing? So last year I started writing and I'm just about to finish it up. Will have been about eight months since I started. Yep. Sorry, about uh, 13 months since I started. And uh, and then the work comes of trying to get it out there with a company that's going to give it all of the the attention that it's due. Right, right. We can have these conversations. Yeah. So I'm pegging you at around the same age. You look younger than I am. Um, what did you grow up with that you feel comes to the forefront when you talk to women about sexuality? What did you feel like growing up with? Yeah, so it's actually kind of a funny story for me. And again, played a role in why I wanted to have these conversations. My parents were both high school teachers. Dad was a science teacher and mom was an English teacher. And um, and they were people who were very open and very committed to like transparency and to mm -hmm. education. So when I was a tiny child and dad pushed me on the swing, he would explain the physics of acceleration and deceleration, right? <laughs> and when love it. mom wrote letters, she would like point out how she structured and everything that we did, the mechanics of it were always kind of examined and, and shared mm. together, except when it came to sexual health. Wow. I was going to, I was going to say, wow, how enlightening you had parents that explained it. <laughs> when I was 11, I came downstairs and my mom said, Kim, there's some pamphlets on the table. You should read them. And if you have any questions, you can ask. No. And that was the end of the conversation. <sighs> and years later, my kids were asking me, mom, you know, grandma and pop seem pretty great. Um, do you think they kind of screwed anything up when they were parenting you? Like, like, <laughs> what did they do well? What did they not do well? And I thought about it and I was like, you know, it was sexual health. And I asked them, like, guys, you were great parents. Yeah. Except like, what the hell happened? <laughs> like, what the wheels fell off the curt. Yeah. And they said, we didn't have the language ourselves. We didn't have the language. That's a great phrase. They absolutely didn't have the language. My mother used to call my vagina a biscuit. Yeah. She couldn't yeah. even say the word. Yeah. How could we have those conversations when we couldn't even conceptualize how we felt or what we did or what, where things went wrong? And they just, without the language, and we're finding this too around trans health issues now, right? That, that previous generations didn't necessarily have the language. Right. They had the feelings, they had the, you know, we lost so many people of those generations. And now we have the language and people are able to find the patterns and recognize that they're not alone or just strange or that there actually is a life and a category and a series of descriptors that work for them, right? Without the language, you can't figure these things out. Yeah. And the, the no conversation part. Yeah. I, I mean, my first stepfather, he was, uh, in my book, I talk about this. He sort of, um, thought it was his duty to sexually re-educate my mother. And so it just, there was this, you know, I got the joy of sex for Christmas when I was 14, but I thought, Oh God, if I open the, this book, it's going to be like, sex like them. And so I just never did. I just, you know, um, 
and I was very curious, but I was also alone a lot as a child of a single mother. So yeah, similarly, I didn't have a, I had a lot of language, but I didn't know what to do with it. I, I just had all these feelings and you're right. Feeling alone in having certain, um, proclivities or ideas of what sex is about and then realizing um I got it all wrong and especially because I moved around a lot as a child and I was um I didn't have the ability to ha- have a boyfriend you know I but I still had the urges and we said that word shame yesterday and um I had a girlfriend of mine even say you know I didn't even do anything until later in life but I still felt shame. So let's dig that word apart. Like why, you know, and I've got so many books on this, you know, Promiscuity as Young Girls, Loose Girls by Carrie Cohen. And they're all talking about how the minute a young girl says that she has desire, it's just this non-discussion. You know, Melissa Fine calls it, um, I'm going to screw the phrase up, but she is, she's like, it's a missing discourse that for young women to have pleasure and think of desire, it's, um, it's just completely absent. And I, I, you know, I think it's changing, but, um, let's talk about shame. Why, why, you know, even when the biology is telling us that, um, I think it's when Wednesday Martin, who says that women are the ones that get bored sexually in a monogamous relationship earlier. We want variety. We want, as you said, the spontaneous desire and things. Whereas before it's like, oh no, no, we want it proper. And I'm like, no, this actually, this is how I want it. And now that we're finally speaking about it, um, we're shedding the shame, but the shame is like this, it's the foundation of our house. It's, it's, it's unfortunately what we've built our sexual sexuality around. So what are, what are you finding with shame? So I want to just briefly address your point about desire first. Okay. And one of the things that's in the OWL curriculum and the 79 OWL curriculum that I love is a story that the preceptor reads. And the story is a very sensual story and they're lying, two people lying in bed together and the the sun is coming in and their skin is sweating where they're touching and, and one partner nuzzles the other partner's breast and it's this very, very sensual story of two naked bodies next to each other. And at the end of the story, it's revealed that it's a mom and baby. Oh. <laughs> And it's addressing the fact that elements of our sexuality are present from the very beginning. Uh That the sensuality piece, people talk about the five circles of of sexuality, the biology, the power piece, the um, health piece, the relationships piece, and the sensuality piece. Uh And that that sensuality piece and the relationships piece are with us from the onset. And those are the things that we develop until we're at the point where our brains and bodies are ready to embrace a more pleasure focused or desire focused genital interaction but those pieces are there from the very beginning um when it comes to shame so there's multiple different definitions but a fairly serviceable one would be a painful 
feeling of distress caused by consciousness of wrong behavior. Um, the wrong behavior piece, I think, is a piece that plays very much in the lives of women because we are socialized to see our default norm as male, young, and fit. Mm -hmm. Add healthy to that if you're a person with chronic illness or disability. Yeah. And if you're not that default thing, then you're defective. Yeah. Absolutely. So when it comes to perimenopausal change or changes of puberty, if we're going back to that point, where all of a sudden we start to become divergent from the male default, the young default, um, it really hits us. And when you survey women, about 37% of women feel shame, particularly related to menopausal symptoms to being in the office when the hot flash hits, to, you know, having vaginal dryness when they approach things with a partner. So particularly shame around the menopause. Really? Yeah. Which is interesting because if you look at shame across the lifespan, the time in our lives when we feel that the strongest shame is generally the teenage years, okay? Mm -hmm. Your brain doesn't fully develop until 25. So in our teenage years, the frontal cortex, which allows us to find distance, which allows us to, you know, step back and reason and put things in perspective, the frontal cortex is really poorly developed as a teenager. And what's really lit up is the amygdala, which is the like fight or flight danger center. So as soon as you do something against the norm, your amygdala lights up and you're overcome with shame. Teenagers have it the worst. Yep. Generally, shame is at its lowest at age 50. Hmm. And then starts to rise again as we get older and start to lose that healthy young piece, right? As we start to be unable to do the things that define us as participating people in society. Right. But generally, shame is at its lowest in midlife, except when it comes to this kind of default norm, once we start to diverge from what we see as that default. Right. Right. Yeah. No, the shame... I think growing up was, uh, and, and it was immeasurable. And, um, I like that you said, yeah, that there is a cultural stereotype of a sexual woman, what she looks like and she's married and she's has a family and, um, there's all these little things in place. Um, I was still shocked. Uh, I have a, a group of friends that, um, we get together for mountain biking and I had mentioned the topic of my book and I thought, Oh, we were away. We would have a great conversation about sex and we didn't. And it went quiet and individually some of them came to me and, and told me things, but um, I, I, I found that very interesting that amongst women to women and, and maybe again, like, uh, I think I'm a, a little different because I am a little more free-spirited or open about it. But are women afraid, still afraid to talk about sex? And and if so, like, what are, what are they worried about? Is it the weight? Is it the, um, you know, Esther Perel, who I'm, I'm sure you know, uh, the sexologist, um, says that, you know, uh, 
sex and pleasure are seen as sort of deviant, self-indulgent, frivolous things. And I think, oh, no, 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 no. Sexuality and sensuality and those five pillars you talked about, I think it's it's everything. I feel like it makes us energized. It makes us feel alive. Um, so what what are women scared of? I think I think there's so many pieces to this that that's a really hard question to answer. I think some of it is relationship that many of these people are in long-term relationships and they see their sexual lives as very much entwined with the well-being of their partner. Uh-huh. And so they don't want to talk about things that might, you know, their their discontent with their current state of sexual life might reflect badly on their partner and they don't want to tell those stories. Um, I think some of it might be a different way. So when we talk about um, libido, we talk about the dual control model, right? Where some people, where everybody has both an accelerator and a break and some people have stronger accelerators. They have more of a push and a drive to explore and other people don't have much of an accelerator Mm -hmm. and so for some people sexuality may not be such an important piece of life for them right right that that for you you've got that strong push um that makes it really a priority for you um and that for other people it might not be much of a priority at all right some of that is just innate Um, Some of it is based around other bigger psychological issues. So we know that people who report lower desire also tend to report lower self-esteem, tend to feel more anxious and shameful about things. So they've got other psychological pieces that are making, putting the brakes on for them, making it harder for them to access those feelings of pleasure and freedom and creativity. So we've got the relationships piece. We've got the accelerator break piece. Um, You know, there's also for people who are dealing with other issues. So we know that sexual activity is strongly linked to overall health. So if you're someone who's, you know, struggling with mental health changes in the perimenopause, this might be the least of your priorities. You're on the medication to treat your depression and it tanks your libido, but God, it's keeping you alive or worried about the breast lump you just found, or the mammogram recall you've had, these things are going to play a role too. So the pieces that play into desire are are really big. And for some people too, if you're, you know, if you're in that sandwich generation and you're still really trying to parent your kids and care for your aging parents, there just isn't the space for that creativity, right? We talk about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, that little triangle where you've got to have your like safety and well-being and food and all of that stuff has to be in place before we can access that self-conceptualization yeah. piece. So for people who are just swamped by all those pieces of life, that accessing that creative piece where sexuality plays such an important role might not be on the table right now, might not be in the cards. Well, and for, you know, we find that in the perimenopausal transition, women actually have really high libido often compared to other points in life because some months you're going to have those peaks of estrogen and testosterone that really drive that libido. Okay. So if we can manage to find a bit of space for exploration, 
with the kids out of the house and the parents settled somewhere and and you've got the hormonal milieu and a bit of time to reconnect with your partner if all of those things are in place or the lack of shame Mm -hmm. around you know that we hit in our midlife where you're like partner or not I'm gonna go try whatever's on offer if all of those stars align then yeah it can be amazing But for a lot of people, there's too many pieces that are just not lined up and they just can't access that space. Well, and that's where I came after that discussion or lack of discussion with my friends was that they all have families. I don't, I don't have children. I have a dog and pre-COVID I've been a travel writer. So there, there is a lot of freedom there, you know, and even the time to write a book, you know, that. Um, for many of them thinking about sex, yeah, they've got teenagers, you know, there's, there is no room for it. Um, on the other side of that, when there is room for it, um, I am finding whether, you know, in, in the media and literature and all, you know, as we discussed briefly yesterday is that sexuality seems to be in the zeitgeist, female sexuality, you know, then the sheer number of books that are coming out, you know, Me Too movement happening. Do you think that some of the cultural uh, proper things are being dismantled a little? Because I know even when I, you know, the Globe and Mail had an article about a six, 60 year old women who are living apart, you know, sort of like a Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, you know, that they had these separate apartments and they had a catwalk. (laughs) I'm like, wow, that would be great. Um, Like women are going, okay, wait, if if I shed all of this cultural stuff, if I have the time and space for it, what what does a sexually free-spirited woman who's curious start to look like? Like even the idea of, you know, late and light lesbians, <laughs> life lesbians, um, you know, everyone from Eat, Pray author, Elizabeth Gilbert, so many of my friends actually are just like, huh, I wonder about that. Are you finding women are like, let's dismantle some of the, whether it's the marriage, um, let's, let's go to a sex club. Let's, let's, invite some difference in and see what happens. You know, the old adage, let's spice her up, right? Is it, is the spice happening? (laughs) Is the curiosity there? So you asked earlier why I thought that my book had something to offer in a market where there's kind of tons of stuff. And I will tell you that there is not much out there that covers the broader piece of sexuality, including all those five circles that we talked about, relationships, bodies, uh, sensualized, sensuality, power and control, all of those pieces. There's nothing out there for people 40 plus. Mm. There's tons of great stuff for youth and young adults, like amazing. I have nothing to add to that sphere. There's so much that I can recommend yeah. to people. Yeah. When it comes to like, like, how do I dismantle the shackles of what I was supposed to be to be a good wife or a good woman? How do I dismantle that and actually find out what's going to work for me? It's not mm-hmm. there. It doesn't exist. There's one other book written by a medical expert on sexuality and midlife. It is 
the worst thing I've ever read. It is <laughs> fat phobic. It is queer phobic. It is oh. misogynist. It is, it's the worst thing I've ever read. I could like, I would shriek as I turned the page because it was just really because it was grounded in these myths about what we're supposed to be, what we should be to be virtuous. Can people. I ask what it was? Or is oh, it? Oh, well, I burned it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If, if you, oh, I will, so- I'll put in the show notes if you can remember. We'll see if we can find it in the show notes. Um, it was written by somebody of Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil did the, the cover notes for it. Oh, well, the, well, the Goodreads reviews were a treat though because I was not the only one who was just blown away by this terrible terrible book of advice oh well that's good to know and and as a uh, wannabe author I've heard that if you read the you know the bad books they actually can help buoy your your confidence and inspiration to write your own book because you're like wow this this is abhorrent and on the the um younger side of things right there's a lot of my book is about um, sexual curiosity and and you know playing in those worlds because it's it's uh you know in so many arenas women are taught to go out there get that job be be all you can be be the president be the welder and yet when someone says I want to go and be sexually curious it's like <laughs> you can hear the breaks and <laughs> it's like we're not dead. And I'm, you know, there's, there was one book that came out called open, uh, about polyamory. I am not polyamorous. Um, but I find that whole world fascinating. And yet her book was just about feeling kind of coerced by, um, a partner. And so it, when I was reading, I was like, well, is this her or is this, I, I was conflicted. So I do think that there has to be more books. Um, I had gone to a sex club in Toronto and I later interviewed a 65 year old woman who lost her husband and she was so lively. She had these bright red glasses, bright red hair, lips, and she's just like, I loved going and getting banged. (laughs) I'm like, what? And the shock of it all, oddly enough, she lost so many girlfriends who judged her. So then there's the judgment part of it where women are still kind of stuck in these ideas of what a woman is all about, you know? Um, you know, are we seeing that too with women? Like they're they're scared of other women? I mean, there's tons and tons of pieces. One of the One of the other reasons that I thought that I had something to contribute to writing the book is, you know, I, I, I'm obviously a medical expert. I know the subject matter well. Um, I've taught sex ed for so many years and have a strong understanding of that work, but I'm also a queer woman. And queer people do a lot of this work early. Mm, they should. Because we will never be what we're supposed to be. Mm, interesting. We will never fit into the idea of what heterocentric, heterosexist, patriarchal society wants us to do. Whether you're two men in a relationship, which means that somebody has to do the feminine tasks, which is 
obviously a horrific distortion of what the heterocentric world wants, Um, or whether you're two women in a relationship who aren't living lives centered around um, supporting a man. And so you have to pull apart all the pieces of what we're supposed to do and who we are and what our goals are supposed to be and how your relationship looks, who does what and why. It's not following the script of what husbands and wives do. Yeah. So queer people have all of this deconstruction that happens early and continuously. Yeah. Whereas people who are living in straight relationships, whether they're straight or whether they're bisexual, if they're living in in straight relationships, there's such a clear script to follow. Yeah. Yeah. That you never have to ask those questions, that you can fully have an unexamined life. Do you know this book? I've not read that book, but I totally agree. Queerness is a superpower for me. Yeah. So the book I'm holding up, dear listeners, is The Tragedy of Heterosexuality by Jane Ward, uh, author of Not Gay. (laughs) And I'll just randomly flip it open. But, um, you know, she talks of things. um, Yeah, that, that, you know, sometimes as women, when um, our partners do something that uh, is, is part of being a good partnership, we get all, oh my God, that's amazing. That, wow, they should, wait, I should give him an award. Um, it's this fear of being lonely and that, oh, any it's better to be with someone than not. And, you know, this, this book was a, it, it was a wake up call because it's, it's, um, I didn't start questioning things until middle age. So all these conversations that you probably had about what do I like? Um, how do I want my uh, sexual life to look like? Um, you know, what am I curious about? Even when I discovered certain things about what I did like, I was like, wow, I kind of knew them all along. Like they were, it was in my gut. And then not until, you know, I, I met a partner where we started talking about these things. We started talking about possibilities of, of, of swinging and all of these things that we were like, wow. So um, I, I just feel like we're behind lesbians and gays in terms of, of sexual, because you're right. You've had these wonderful conversations, you know, and um I feel duped. (laughs) Yeah. And that's a big part of what my book is actually about is, is how can things be different, right? Here's 10 different ways to do things. Have you thought about that before? Mm -hmm. Right. What, what might things look like if you did it this way? How might that be different? Yeah. Um, Because yeah, people, there's no forum in our culture to have those conversations. No, no. And as I said, even, even with the girlfriends that I went to university with and I was like, Oh yeah, I did this this weekend. And they're like, you did what? <laughs> like, it, it just, just seems so odd. And even saying the word, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm or the, the phrase, you know, I'm, my book is from promiscuity to pleasure. 
And the idea is that I had a lot of trauma and sh- uh, sexual sh- misconceptions and shame to, to, to slough off be- before I would feel okay and, and, and um, okay my own skin. And that's awful. It's I, I'm 51 for fuck's sakes. How how is it that it's only now that I feel quote normal? <laughs> like, um, so I feel like there's there's a lot of that uh, you know for your 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 potential readers to understand. You know what what advice do you give to women who are like on the verge of trying these things out? I think I mean you're talking about how you felt sanctioned maybe by your peers or, or, you know, that they were shocked or horrified that you were doing this. And I think a lot of that stems from the tiny little bit of sex ed that we did get, which was very much sex is dangerous Mm -hmm. and you shouldn't do it. Right. And once you're in a marriage relationship, then you're okay because it's less dangerous, but sex is dangerous. Yep. And you shouldn't do that. Um, so if we start to shift sexual education away from danger towards pleasure, right? And, and the way that we do that is by talking about risk reduction or harm reduction and actually being thoughtful about what's preventable, what's a nuisance, but not dangerous. I have so many patients in my practice who have genital herpes and are devastated, devastated. And genital herpes is a nuisance. Yeah. That's it. So that's your message to people that, that, that get it. And then, well, I remember growing up and um, yeah, you, you would hear about, oh, so-and-so got it or, and uh, yeah. So you think in many ways, it hasn't changed. Like we still don't know enough. Yeah, absolutely. That, that it's just people have that idea that it's dangerous and that it's, it's, um, what's the word I'm looking for that you're just, you're, you're being reckless, right? You are being reckless with your health and the health of your partners. If you're not in a monogamous relationship, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and and people that's a terrible thing you don't want to be reckless with your health and your partner's health but if you actually start to break down the dangers if you actually have the knowledge and the context to look at the risks associated with new sexual partners how you can modify that yep. it becomes a totally different conversation it becomes an informed conversation about balancing pleasure and risk rather than reckless behavior, right? But we don't have the words for that. No, no. And even, um, it's, I still don't know many single women who are, well, one that was recently divorced and um, she's having the time of her life. And she, again, she's doing it. Um, She's having the conversations with her partner. She's saying, this is what's happening. And, um, but it's, she's had to, she's, she's reading books every week about like, well, what does this mean? What, I don't know. It's like a new frontier in many ways. So, um, yeah, the idea that having someone, um, fixes all of that 
maybe culturally, you know, like showing up. It's funny, um, a favorite food writer of mine, MFK Fisher, wrote an essay about eating alone uh, at a restaurant as a as a female. And she said, back in the 40s, men would look at you suspiciously and women were angry with you. And I'm like, that's still some kind holds true. You show up alone, alone is alone, you know? And um, it, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's disturbing. Like as someone who's often, I always travel alone. I still get asked, why aren't you married? Where's your husband? <laughs> you know, what if, I, what if I'd be like shocked them? Well, I don't like men or God forbid, you know, the, the, there's just this other way. And I just think we're starting to get there, but to live it. A- I think a lot of the, the fear mm-hmm. that women have about being around as a couple around a single woman. Yeah. Um, I, I really like the language of polyamory to help address some of those fears because for those of us in our generation, we grew up with jealousy as a demonstration of love. Right. Yeah. And we grew up with no framework, although, you know, it was starting, um, um, the ethical slut. The ethical slut was out, right, when we were young people. Right over there. Yeah. So, those, so those conversations were starting to happen, but really didn't permeate the general population. So we have a generation of people for whom demonstration of jealousy is love, for whom there's really no um, space for exploration of sexuality outside the dyad, outside the couple. And then we have this single person who comes up into the myth midst of the couple relationship or the group of couple relationships and is seen as a threat or a disruptive force. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Part of that is the infantilization of men. They can't control their urges, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but I think that the language of polyamory, the language of compersion, which is the opposite of jealousy, um, the deconstruction of jealousy, the, um, the ability to look at relationships as not the one person who does all things, but as different people can fill different needs in your life, whether those be sexual, emotional, or shared interests. Um, I think that all of those pieces are pieces that enhance monogamous relationships as well. That it takes you out of the fear of losing your partner and into the exploration of how can both of us have full rich lives that engage community rather than being um, entirely reliant and dependent on each other. I love so much of this. Um, I have a chapter on dancing. And when I started to go to these EDM parties, I did a little academic research in the the parties are about connecting. And I remember the first time I wrote about this, um, when my partner saw me just sort of bouncing between all these people. And I was just like, oh my God, I can touch you. You can touch me. We can dance together for a while. Like it was ridiculous amounts of connection. The The week after my mother died, I went to one of those parties because I knew my cup would fill up. I knew that 
that was a community space where I was going to have people touching me and it was okay to touch. Um, I, I just, I came alive. I cried. I gave away her bracelets and people were like, you're giving me away. Like the rules were different in that space. And I just, I want more of that acceptance outside the world. You know, um, it just, it, it's, the most human thing to say, I need a hug. I need to be loved. I need to be touched. I need to belong. And yet when we say those things, it's like we value individual, you know, if you live alone, you're all this strong woman. Well, no, we, (laughs) Barbara Streisand, you know, people who need people are the luckiest people. And it's, uh, I just wish we could get there, you know, that it's okay to to love a lot of people for different reasons. It's not all sexual. You don't own your partner, but we still, these clamps are all on us, you know, and we're like, no, that's not, that's not serving me anymore. So I can't wait to read your book. I can't wait for there to be more people screaming, this is how I feel and this is what I want. And compersion, I, I write about that a lot. I think that it's, um, I mean, it's a Buddhist principle for God's sakes. You know, it's this genuinely being able to have joy for your partner. Your partner is able to love someone else. Like, um, how nice is that? How nice that they can be happy, you know? And jealousy is is awful. It's I could do a whole podcast just on jealousy. It's it's insidious. It, it makes you feel insecure. You compare. It's terrible. So I, I think the time is ripe for these conversations. I have a good friend who's a life coach, and she sees the world through the rose-colored glasses of abundance. Are you operating from a place of abundance, or are you operating from a place of scarcity? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and human capacity for connection is abundant yeah we don't have to back ourselves into a corner where we're all alone and there's only one person who we can interact with or rely on or or be vulnerable with that's a scarcity mindset and it creates fear agony is optional agony is optional okay well kim i'm gonna leave it there because i'm sure we could go for another hour talking about this and we can do a when the book comes out i'd love to talk to you too about um how that's gonna go um but this has been wonderful thank you thanks for having me on Millie. take care thanks for listening to the sexy times and be sure to subscribe you don't want to miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review The Sexy Times where you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to reach out to me or send me some research, send me a note at melanie.writing at gmail.com. Later, ladies. <laughs>